This episode was brought to you by HBO. The finalists for the 2020 HBO APA Visionary Short Film Competition have been announced. HBO Visionaries will be celebrating its fourth class of emerging Asian and Pacific Islander American filmmakers on Friday, September 25th during the virtual Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. Tune in at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Friday, September 25th via www.hbovisionaries.com. You can meet this year's visionaries, watch the films, and see familiar faces. Find out more information about the program and official rules on the website, and keep an eye out for the opening of submissions for the 2021 competition and the opportunity to have your short film considered for HBO and HBO Max. Again, that's www.hbovisionaries.com. All three Visionary 2020 shorts will also be available to stream on HBO Max on Tuesday, September 29th. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our seventh season, which we're calling Asian American Interracial Cinema where we cover our relationship as Asian Americans with other races through different films over the course of our history. Today, we're really excited because we have a special guest, Jocelyn Luckett, who is an assistant professor of cinema studies at New York University. And we're really excited because we're going to start by talking about the 1973 short film, I Told You So, by Ellen Kondo. But we also want to delve deeper in her own research which is super fascinating to us, and we think it'll be really fascinating to all of you, too. Yeah, so, so welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you. I had the pleasure of working with you this last year or so on a special issue of Film Quarterly, and your piece just really, it not only showed how much more there is to learn about the history of Asian American cinema, but also that this is a scavenger hunt. <laughs> We're literally in the archives, and when I read that of your work, it was just speaking to everything that I do, too, and that I care about. The piece that you wrote was about, specifically, it was about two women filmmakers in the history of visual communications who no one ever talks about. For those who don't know, Visual Communications is a media arts organization that formed around 1970 out of a lot of the students at Ethnic Communications at UCLA. And then they decided to find ways to tell the stories, especially in the beginning of kind of the way they grew up or telling the stories of Japanese incarceration through film, through photography. And they supported a lot of educational programs in Los Angeles throughout the 70s. And now they're, they're still around. And amongst other things, they're very famous for putting on the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. And so much of, to me, what I found so fascinating about your piece was it's not just the content of their films, but it's the fact that we don't have access to these films anymore in the same way that we do the other filmmakers like Robert Nakamura and Dwayne Kubo. And also I Told You So, which is part of that generation as well. And so just like, your voice in the article, your voice as somebody who is both like hungry to know more about it, but also you are the one person who has collected this information. It was so valuable for our issue. Thank you. It was such an honor to be in that issue. 
this research has been such a gift to me, I think. Um, how it really began was the more that I started to hear about the new scholarship, and when I say new, I mean like in the early, maybe like around 2010, 2012, about the LA Rebellion filmmakers, the black filmmakers who went to UCLA. These are people like Charles Burnett and Julie Dash, and Haile Garima. I kind of knew that they were there with other people of color and other really important filmmakers of color. And I wondered why this new round of scholarship was not talking about them. And I hadn't known that they had been part of an affirmative action program at UCLA called the Ethnocommunications Program, which was sort of initially dreamed up actually by the chair of the UCLA Film School at that time, a, a Scottish film scholar named Colin Young, who recruited the first black professor, Eliseo Taylor, to UCLA Film School in 1969 around, and was uh, mandated by actually the whole UC system to address what they called the urban crisis that was going on in the late 60s, you know? So each department was sort of mandated with coming up with something, and, and Colin Young thought that they they should start something called the Media Urban Crisis Committee, which was a group of faculty and staff and new students, activist students, people like Moctezuma Esparza, who becomes really important in Chicano cinema. Early filmmakers like Danny Kwan and Brian Maeda are in this initial group of students who come. But there were even some students of color who arrived before this group arrives. And that's when people like Betty Chen and Laura Ho uh, were actually in the film school before the ethnocommunications program even started. And Betty Chen had been a, a teaching assistant for this young group, um, including people like Bob Nakamura and uh, Joanne Kubo. She was their TA. So finding the films was such a thrill uh, in the UCLA Film Archive. They at least had a couple of the student films of Betty Chen and then the visual communications Abe Ferreira had the one film by Laura Ho that we were just joking before, Brian and I, that um, we spent so much time sitting at Abe's desk watching this one DVD of those old films. Laura's film was a film called Sleepwalkers, which is a really unusual film, especially as opposed to the other set of films that are on that one DVD, which were the early films by like Eddie Wong and Danny Kwan that are much more kind of social realism uh, documentaries. This was a narrative film. So Laura Ho's film is a narrative film about a young woman, a typist, who has this terrible grunge of a job, but she one day decides to not go to work and have this kind of magical, but strange and kind of... Um, I don't know, melancholy day in the city. And it's so unusual. And so I was wondering, gosh, what could this film really be about? You know? And so luckily I was able to ask her about it. And if you know about Laura Ho, she also was one of the founders of the really important magazine Ghidra. She's also one of the original members of this thing called the Asian Radical Movement Arm, which had staged some really important protest and organizing on UCLA campus. And in fact, a bunch of these students got arrested. And so what she explained to me and what I was able, with her permission, to write about in the article was that that film was something that she wrote after she had been arrested and after the terms of her parole said, you're not allowed to be in communication or hang out with any of your radical friends. And so suddenly this piece became a piece about 
the kind of aftermath of radical organizing. And so that solitary space and her loneliness suddenly is so heavy with, you know, this feeling of an aftermath. So it becomes a very charged political piece in a sense when you have that bit of information. It's my secret fantasy to ask her one day if we could put like a title card to give a little bit more of that history. So the experience of the film might hit you a little bit different. Um, but it, it's a really, really powerful and beautiful piece. It's also shot so beautifully. She, she got great feedback from her cinematography professor, too. It's so amazing. And how would any of us have known about this if you hadn't asked her? And just to contextualize, what decade was this that they were making these films? 1970, I believe the, I believe the event, the, uh, the protest and the arrest all happened around 69, 70 on campus. So she was away from campus and then she returned to go back to do her MFA. And this was, I think, her project two, you know, in the UCLA film system, they have the project one, project two. So Sleepwalker, she tells us, was her project two film. And am I correct in understanding that the only way to watch this is to contact Abe and go to that office behind East West Players and sit at his desk and watch it from his computer? I hate to tell you, I think that might be the only way. I will say that the UCLA Film Archive about a year ago, they did a 40 years of student films and they did show Sleepwalker. So it could be now that the archive may have a copy. Wow. But on the other side of that, how great is it that there is a copy there if we need to watch it and we need to talk about it and we need to know that stuff like this existed in 1970 when we're in 2020, sometimes still having all these questions about like, what is our history? Where do we fit into all of this discussion? Like we see the protests now and what do we do and how does it feel? And you know what I mean? Like, do we feel like we're sleepwalking? And did somebody understand that like 50 years ago? The more I think about that film, and I'm still writing about it, there is, I think, in the fantasy part of that film, a real gesture towards self-care, you know? Black Lives Matter, Black feminists talk about self-care, you know, as, as a new, really important element of political activism. And I think, wow, that film suggested a kind of, you know, self-care or... I don't know. I, I think it is kind of radical and avant-garde in that way. So in, in thinking about the fact that she was involved in these protests, and these protests weren't just for the Asian American movement. These were often multiracial, or, or in the, the parlance of the day, like third worldist kind of protests for ethnic studies, but also against the Vietnam War. This month is the 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, which was something that we usually think about as a moment in Chicano history, and it's a significant one, but it's also one that involves a lot of ethnocommunication students. It does. So can you talk about the ways in which these students were working across racial lines and not just, say, making a Chicano film, or not just making an Asian American film? Yeah, that touches me so much, and I'm glad you brought up the Chicano Moratorium and the film that that first group of mother muckers, they call themselves, the media urban crisis students call themselves the mother muckers. Um, <laughs> the muckers, that first summer after they had done the first two quarters of UCLA, they got together, again, um, organized largely by Esparza, who produced that film. David Garcia, who was their TA, is cited as the director of that film. But Black 
film students like Richard Wells, Brazilian film student like Mario da Silva, they talk about, yeah, that was the first time I got tear gas, you know, shooting Requiem, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and so it is, you see from that, that it's a real multiracial gathering of students who work on that film. So that's important. Um, again, the protest that Laura Ho and some of the others got arrested for was for a black food worker actually at UCLA. So again, it was sort of, you know, these justice issues were definitely cross-racial, third worldist, you might say. And also in these interviews I was able to conduct with people like Brian Maeda, he has a great story of one of his classmates who was from Compton, a guy named Wendell, who's father was, I think, running for mayor of Compton or something. And they went and they shot a film in Compton about him. And the guy happened to be a Republican. <laughs> he said, I've never met a Black Republican. You know? <laughs> but, but because of ethno communications, you know, we went and made a film about this guy. <laughs> so, um, and they loved that. In fact, someone like Brian Maeda actually kind of grieved that the later classes tended to break off more into their own racial groups instead of more of the cross-racial work that he feels that first class was participating in. So yeah, they definitely are working across cross-racially. You can also really see that if you look carefully at the credits of so-called LA Rebellion films by people like Larry Clark, Haile Grima, you see Danny Kwan, you see Eddie Wong, um, you see a lot of that crossing going on on the other side of the cameras. So that's happening too. Those collaborations are really real. So in your research, did you find how this kind of wanting to support each other was happening on even the curricular level? Do you know what their classes were like? Was it structured for them to be able to work together in that way? I've heard a little bit different things about that. This first professor, Eliseo Taylor, who started two courses, he started a class called Film and Social Change, and he started a class on films of Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Those two classes that started with him are still taught at UCLA, which is such a remarkable thing. So again, for that alone, Eliseo Taylor changed the curriculum of UCLA Film School, you know, and in a really lasting way. So I always think that's powerful. So yes, yeah, so in terms of the kinds of films they were seeing, almost all of them say it was the most amazing thing to see these Argentinian films, these Cuban films, these African films, these Asian films, films from India. That inspired us and made us think that film could really do a different kind of work than, than they had known, you know? So on that level, yes. There was also a curricular element that did say, we want you to go into your own communities and film your communities. There's tales about this location scout. Steve Tatsukawa talks about going to different places, different Chinese communities. I think in, in Locke, a community called Locke upstate. All the VC guys have great photos of this particular location scout. So that was a thing where they went, you know, to I think Native American reservations. I think they went to Oakland and filmed a, a Panther rally. I mean, so so they were kind of traveling to different communities too. So that was all also explicit, I think, in the kind of work, the approach that these courses were designed for. These aren't just film production classes. You're not just learning how to turn on your camera and do the lighting. You're also learning how to interact with the community. Like that's not usually on as part of a film production curriculum. 
Absolutely. And that, you know, in some ways we have to go back again to Colin Young, because one of the things that Colin Young did at UCLA Film School, which is of note and really important in the ethnographic film community, was that he actually started a program at UCLA that combined film students with anthropology students for these same kinds of skill building sets, you know, to bring students of different disciplines together to go into communities in that case, usually faraway communities, not necessarily the students' own communities. But it was always important for him to be talking to the social sciences, to be talking to the journalist. It's a really important thing that he did at UCLA Film School that I think laid groundwork for the kind of work that the ethnocommunication students ended up doing. Yeah, in my research, I found that the, the development of an education film market was a big part of this, training students to make education films. And I think that, that kind of partnership across disciplines makes a lot of sense for that. Uh, I'm so moved when you're talking about Elizabeth Taylor and these classes, film social change, the African, Asian, Latin American cinema class, because I was a TA for the, both of those classes for To Show Me Gabriel. You were? Those changed my life too, as, as someone who teaches and does research and just loves movies. So... That's so beautiful to hear, Brian. That's so important. It's wonderful whenever anybody raises to show me his name because he's so important for so many reasons. But a lot of people think he founded those two courses. And in fact, it was his elder, Eliseo, who did. So It's kind of cool to think that on one hand, you might think, oh, like every other class is for like the white mainstream and then they put everything else in the other category. But it's nice to kind of flip that and also think like, because Latino and Asian, et cetera, film were in one class that there might have been a lot of opportunity for intersectionality. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember when we were in grad school, we were like, we thought we were above this. Like, how could you put all three of them in one class? <laughs> As if just non-white equals its own category. But now that we're thinking about the politics, especially in 2020, it seems more important than ever to be thinking in those terms. Now I want to take that class. <laughs> so important. I think it's so important. I feel like it's so important too for all of us teaching now, especially after the events of the last few months. I think there was a push even in my department to say, oh, we need to do more black film and more. And I was like, we need to do more multiracial film courses. I mean, we don't have really many black students, you know, but we have lots of Asian American students and Asian national students. We have Puerto Rican, you know, Cuban, Venezuelan. So we need to be showing the kinds of films that get those conversations started across the racial groups, I think. You did mention, and I'm really fascinated about this, that as ethnocommunications, as the years went on, the students did become more in their own lanes. And I wonder if that was because of the development of institutions like visual communications, where they had a lane to go. Like when visual communications became official in the early 70s, then the students could be like, you know what, I'm really just in the Asian American side. I'm just going to focus on that. Is, is that what you saw in your research? I, yeah, I think so. It's such an interesting thing in terms of the institutions and also sort of the rise of public affairs television, because you have all these consortiums saying, you know, we're going to do the Chicano half hour, the, the Asian half hour, the native half hour, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was suddenly the opportunity to create work for these monoracial sort of programming. Yeah, so it's a really mixed bag, this issue, because... Um, I think still more crossing happened than we think and know. And I mean, you know, VC had black filmmakers, you know, on staff and helping and working people like Carol Parrott Blue and John Rear was a long-term VC member. Um, 
But the really interesting thing, and this actually just happened to me last night, I was watching this documentary about Charles Burnett on the Criterion channel right now. It's called The Walk with Charles oh, Burnett. Yeah. It's I really saw, great. It's from, I saw that, yeah. Robert Townsend is walking with Charles Burnett. And he drops the name of visual communications at one point. And um, that's funny. My husband and I were saying, gosh, will people, will people know who visual communications is? You know, we're watching this particular documentary. I was like, oh, I hope so. Um, I hope they'll Google. But I will tell you time and time again, when I've interviewed Haile Garima and Charles Burnett, they always say, oh, we wish we had done like visual communications. We wish we had really organized and been more of a collective. I mean, when, when they hear like, oh, they're celebrating 50 years, it's like the sigh, like, like, oh, we could have done that, you know, but we didn't. Um, and so people have different ideas about why that didn't happen or not. So it's a mixed thing. I think it's so powerful that VC did organize and that when you say staying in their lane, but it's funny because that lane just kept getting wider and wider with the new rounds of immigration, you know, so it, it was so rich and a big thing to try to contain even in itself. So losing the multiracial piece. I don't know. So I guess this is the opportunity for us again as scholars and journalists to gather it back together. I mean, I'm really hoping that that's what the book <laughs> that I'm working on right now is going to do just by talking about how projects that the VC guys were working on match projects that the Black filmmakers were doing, that the Chicano filmmakers, I mean, around things like gentrification, around things like land rights, I mean, fishing rights, all of this for the Native Americans. I mean, there's, there's such similar topics in these films. And that if you think about them collectively, then you really understand more about, you know, racial formation and, and, and politics for people of color in ways that I think are much more meaningful if you look at, at them, you know, cross-racially, I think, and, instead of just monoracially. So maybe it's worth actually thinking about what were in these films. So in a previous season, we talked about Cruz and Chaytown, which does end with sort of a jam session, like a cross-racial jam session. So you, you do get the sense that that was on the mind of these filmmakers, that that could be, that's the culmination. Like that's proof that this music is part of a community and not just cultural music. They wanted that political element at the end, which is at least to, to acknowledge that we are part of a community that's bigger than Japanese Americans. That's right. And I think with that film especially, and why the music is, is so important, why Hiroshima is so important, the band, it also speaks of kind of the displacement after internment, you know, at Boyle Heights and the Crenshaw District, you know, these Black and Chicano neighborhoods that suddenly became Black, Chicano, Japanese, you know, that sonically things blend and merge because those communities are suddenly on the same block, you know, like you said, jamming together. And when um, Danny Valdez in, in Cruz and Shade Town is talking with Dan Carmato, I had known that they really collaborated on a lot of stuff. They worked on the music for Zoot Suit together. I mean, they, they did like really important collaborations musically too. So, but that was because they also kind of grew up together in, in those neighborhoods. I think it's a perfect segue into I Told You So, directed by Alan Kondo, which is also kind of about sound. It's about speech. It's about how people talk. Fresno's grown. The new businesses lit for blast off. I told you so. Oh, yes. You get off where it tells you. West side. I told you so. Oh, yes. It's already blasted off by the laws of progress. 
by the cause of commercial parks. I told you so, oh yes. Tore out most of winos dark. I told you so, oh yes. So just a little bit about the film. This is a short documentary. I think it's about 18 minutes long. It's a profile of the Japanese-American poet Lawson Inada. And we watch him in Fresno, where he hails from. And it's just a lot of just him hanging out with his friends in the streets. And on the soundtrack, we get some of his poetry. He was one of the first Asian Americans to have a sole author poetry collection. It's called Before the War from 1971. One of the stories is that, and you see this in the short film as well, that they're coming up with a Asian American. Ai. Yeah, this one. Oh, there we yep. go. She has the, what is it? Ai, an anthology of Asian American writers. The legendary, the legendary. The legendary anthology, right? I mean, I kind of remember this from my ethnic studies days at Berkeley. But also a couple funny things. One of the cutest things that Lawson wrote to me about is that if you look at the editors, he's the one Japanese American editor and three Chinese American editors. He said, I was really related to Eddie Wong in BC because he was the only Chinese American with three other Japanese Americans. So I thought that was cute. The other very hip thing is if you didn't notice, this was published by Howard University Press. Wow. The first publication was Howard University Press. So another beautiful Afro-Asian. <laughs> I had no idea. That's, That's so cool. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that fact. So yes, back to the film. It's so special and I think historic that you see gatherings of the editors and poets, contributors. I think probably at Lawson's home at that point in the film. And he reads, he reads that beautiful poem for John Okada. The film is so special, I think, for a number of reasons. His poetry is featured so beautifully, I think, in the film. And for me, I had seen just a clip of the film in Arthur Dong's documentary, Claiming a Voice, about the VC filmmakers. And when I saw this guy strutting down the street with that black, you know, tam on, you know, he has like, a mustache. I said, this guy, you know, Amiri Baraka, all those people are probably like, man, he's gonna, he's gonna take our thunder, you know? He was just so hip, he was so dynamic. So I had to find out who he was. I hated that I hadn't known who he was. So that led me to exploring more and more of his work. And beyond that film, he does a lot of really important collaborations with jazz musicians. And the other book that I love of his called Legends from Camp, has a whole section called jazz. There's just one little line I wanted to read to you because I think it's part of what you feel, I think, in the film. He says, the music we most loved and played and used was Negro music. It was something we could share in common, like a lingua franca in our colored community and in our distorted reality of aliens and alienation it even felt like citizenship. So there's something powerful to, to me about his, his draw that he got from his father to you know, black music, black jazz music, that it was in this time. I mean, he talks about learning about this music when he was a kid in camp. Um, he's saying, you know, we couldn't even hear the records. We didn't have a record player, but my father would hum these jazz standards to me. And to think about him being in camp 
learning these, you know, black jazz standards. And then this idea that it sounded like citizenship It's powerful. It's a really, again, it's an idea of, of this music of these, you know, colored communities feeling a kind of solidarity and even belonging, I think, through the sound. So I think that's what you start to really feel with him is that sound is so important and sound is a connector because that sound, that like clave sound you hear when he's walking down the street, that's so Chicano, you know, that's so like Latin music. So it's very cool to me that that's June and Dan's first film, June and Dan Carmoto. that's their first time scoring a film for the VC group. And after that, they basically become, I always call it like the in-house composers <laughs> for VC, because I mean, they score so many of those early films. That's impressive alone that this, this band that becomes this huge multi-platinum or whatever, you know, jazz fusion group is, is the in-house composer for these early VC films, I think is really impressive. So stylistically, what Lawson does then is different than I think what Hiroshima does, which Hiroshima, like they're searching for a fusion sound, right? The Japanese music is still, you can hear it in there somewhere. Whereas Lawson in I Told You So kind of talks about rejecting what he calls orientalness, that he's afraid of being too Japanese. And maybe because he doesn't identify with it, he talks about how distant the Japan is from the reality on the ground, which is more Chicano, more black, more multiracial. But in his poetry, you don't really necessarily hear Japanese stylistic markers, at least from the poetry that we hear in the film. So another way of thinking about him then is he's, today we would talk about appropriation, right? Like that he's talking Chicano, he's talking black, which is different than what Hiroshima did, which is I'm a fusion of different cultures, including Japanese-ness. Interesting. I like this perspective. Well, because I think that, I know Ada and I talk about this too, that, um, that we live in a moment now where someone like Aquafina, who also grew up in New York City, the black vernacular, something she grew up with, now being heavily criticized for using that vernacular as her primary one. Whereas with Lawson, it's a little bit different, maybe? Like, I don't know, what do you think about Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is a great question. I mean, you do hear him talk in the film about how his family just happened to not be involved with a lot of the Japanese cultural centers, and they weren't involved with the Buddhist community. And so he was, you know, like you say, hanging out with his Chicano neighbors and being heavily influenced by the Black music, blues, rhythm and blues, jazz. One of the things I remember him saying when I was trying to ask him just about those days was that he remembered those days always being so multiracial. And what he was talking about actually was a poetry scene, you know, that the poetry scene was always very mixed. And this echoes what you hear with the Asian American women poets, you know, in the Bay Area and New York, hanging out with all the for color girls. Uh, and Izaki Shenge, all those people. That woman of color movement too in the literary world is happening that's always very multiracial. So this is really, this is interesting. I, I mean, I haven't thought as much about the sound and the choices that he's making in the literary text. Yeah, and I feel like context is everything, right? Because it's like, if this is happening in the 1970s, you can't put your same judgments that you would have developed by now onto that. And I think there's also questions of, does he speak like that because of his authentic upbringing? Um, yeah, it's funny, even in that opening poem, the I told you so poem, he talks about, you know, you took your old name back. You take your old name back, Chano. I told you so, oh yes, Chano. Which was a name given to him by, you know, his Chicano neighbors. And stamped it on the back of your hand. I told you so, oh. 
Um, so, so that's so strong. But then if you think about toward the end when he is with the, the IE collective and he's reading the poem for John Okada and talking about going to the Japanese grocer up in Seattle and bringing home these important items, you know, so there is still a, a deep rootsiness and a need and a hunger, like a literal hunger, I think, to fill with that pilgrimage to Seattle for one of his literary heroes. So that's, that's still really there for him too, I think. But again, to choose someone like Okada, the no-no boy, that force of the resistance is so strong for him too. So, um, yeah, this is rich. I know. I think I was like, I wasn't expecting to talk about Aquafina today, but we could. Because <laughs> I think part of it is that when we grow up, different people grow up in different communities, right? So your comfort level with being labeled as Asian American and part of the Asian American community is completely influenced by where you grew up, right? So that's like one thing. And then the other thing is like, you're of course influenced by the media and what you see, whether it's through film and television or newspapers and stuff. And of course, like you have your favorite singers, your favorite actors, your favorite blah, blah, blah. And when we grow up, it's not Asian people, <laughs> or it could be Asians from Asia, but it's not Asian Americans. I don't want to generalize, but like for our generation, definitely, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s and prior, right? So I can see how there is this natural like, like, you could say that Aquafina talks black. You could also say I talk white, right? It's like such a weird place. And I think this is why Asian Americans don't know what our place is a lot of the time, because we don't have a specific place. And it's like, I guess this is part of us trying to create a place, but it's also hard to create a place because we're just so many different cultures and you can't, you know what I mean? Like, there's not anything very clear. And I think part of it is like how much of it is how she talks in terms of where she grew up and her influences and how much is an accent she puts on as part of her comedy. Yeah, yeah. She kind of plays it for laughs. Like, I am an Asian-American woman who talks this way. Like, that, that's supposed to be a punchline in its, of itself. That makes people uncomfortable. Because before Aquafina, there were so many instances of bad Asian-American rappers that were badly pretending to be black. And we always just thought they would go away. <laughs> And we, so we thought Aquafina, you know, this is like funny for summer, but she became big. And then, so at that point, it's sort of like, oh, cat's out of the bag. We can't deny this anymore. <laughs> like we have to address this thing that was at one time considered funny. Yeah. And I think part of it is like, I think a lot of this is about power and influence, right? It's like when it's just like this funny, she got famous from a song called My Vag, right? And at that point, nobody knew who she was. And then this thing went viral, right? So it's like, when you see that, it's just funny, right? And the thing is like, who would have predicted that she would become a, was she a Golden, Golden Globe, Globe winner? winner? But I think it's like this weird negotiation, right? When you're someone who has very little power, you also have very little responsibility, right? But I think someone like Aquafina, like she shot up so quickly that I don't even know how to negotiate that as like a fan and viewer. What do I feel about that when I laughed at that at some point? You know what I mean? Like, what do I feel about it now that like she has this power and influence? Like, I don't know if Brian, you have better thoughts about this. I have more questions than thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also like when you see her in the farewell and you're like, oh, you could turn that off. But do you think she did that for the farewell? To turn it off? I mean, we don't know. I, I don't know Aquafina, yeah, or Nora. I don't necessarily want need this to be a referendum on Aquafina because there's a lot we don't know. And at the end of the day, like, this is something we learned covering Asian American entertainment for Asia Pacific Arts. It's hard to be the first person out there with a certain kind of visibility, to be on a Golden Globe stage. 
I think all we can do is try to learn from it and kind of see how what the conversations are around it. We'll see what happens in the future. <laughs> the only thing I was thinking about in terms of this interesting line between sort of natural influence and appropriation, again, if we look back at these early films, I was thinking about Danny Kwan's Homecoming Game that really looks at like Asian American hardcore, you know, and these guys, some of them, um, I mean, they sound so black to me <laughs> you know, it just tickles me. Um, but also it lets me know that they were hanging out with black folks, you know, and that, and that that was the nature of, you know, like if they were growing up in the Crenshaw district, that's, you know, who they were around. And so it's actually delightful to me and pleasing to me to think that these crossings were happening, that these kind of social hangs were happening in ways that I, I don't see them happening so much now, you know? So when I hear these different inflections are very like Chicano inflections at times, I think, wow, Oh, look at that. That's sonic evidence of these collaborations and communities that please me. And, and I almost long to hear more of that when it is in a, you know, maybe it's hard for me to say, you know, what's natural and what isn't. But um, when I do hear it, I think, oh, this, this gives me some evidence that people were actually hanging out together and sharing ideas and sharing struggle, you know, which we know did happen. And so when we hear less of that, then I'm like, hmm, this is interesting how it's not happening anymore. Right. You know? Yeah, because I think that's what's sort of complicated about this idea of appropriation, right? Like it kind of puts people back in these lanes, right? Another way of thinking about it, which has been raised before, is, well, why don't you just speak Asian? Right. Why don't, we, why don't you just speak with a Chinese voice or Japanese voice, whatever that is? Because this is something that was really on the minds of that IE generation, like Frank Chin and all of them. They wanted to create a Asian American vernacular with their own pop cultural references and a bricolage of like a little bit of Chinese, a little bit of Japanese and bring it all a little bit of like pigeon. And that didn't really take off. It felt artificial, felt like we're inventing something as opposed to just how Asian people actually talk. What's so great about I told you so is this is actually how Lawson and how to talks. Like you don't have to invent an Asian language. But that is our argument saying like, well, why do you have to appropriate? Why can't you just speak your own culture? If there's a Chicano way of talking or a black vernacular, where's the Asian vernacular? When you said, why don't you talk Asian? My first reaction was, what does that even mean? Exactly, right? We don't know what, like, but they were trying to invent something like that because they did see the usefulness of this pan-Asian category. But in practice, like, what is that? Yeah, because I think I don't, like, it's funny because I think I speak like an Asian American, <laughs> you know, like, that's just how I talk. But I remember, like, going back to Taiwan and talking to my Taiwanese cousins and they'd be like, oh, my God, you speak just like the cast of Friends. <laughs> Were you horrified? I was so confused, but it was so fascinating because I was like, never would I have ever thought anyone would compare me to Jennifer Aniston or Courtney Cox. Because, you know, in like our world, I'm like so far away from that, you know. But then I was like... Yeah, I, I probably, I say like, who knows? You know, it's a bit California talk, right? Definitely. I think it has so much also to do when talking about, you know, intersectional analysis it has to do with class, region, you know, education, background, all of that. Because I was, I was thinking just these artists and poets from this early Asian American movement are not sounding like their parents, you know? And so I think they are asking so many questions about 
how do we sound, <laughs> you know? And do we want to sound a kind of way? And it's funny, it's so sweet also in I Told You So when I think it's his aunt who works at the fish market is saying, I don't know what this whole identity thing is about. Like, why are they so worried about the identity? You know? But they were worried about it. You know, they were really asking questions about it because it was new. It was original and new, you know? And so... But I love yeah. to see that, too, because it was the woman of the generation, I think maybe like 0.5 generation over Lawson, who was just like, I'm super comfortable with who I am. I don't get why you're questioning. And that's that's nice to see, too. You yes. know? So, yeah, I relate to what you're saying. It's like when you say talk Asian, like you want me to talk like my parents. And it's like, I don't know how to do my parents' accent. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that doesn't seem to me to be authentic in any way. <laughs> so it's also acknowledging things like as Jocelyn says, this is also about class and education that a lot of Asian, especially East Asian Americans, we've had the class privilege or education privilege of, kind of shedding the accents of our parents. Whereas if we didn't have that kind of privilege, that may not have happened quite as quickly generationally with other people of color. And so that's also something to acknowledge that, yeah, we shouldn't just be idealistic and say, oh, I wish we had an Asian voice. It's sort of like, well, we've had the privilege of not having to have an Asian voice. And I think that's something that we need to acknowledge, too. The other uh, area that maybe we should talk about is gender, because I think one of the points of critique of that IE generation was that there are a bunch of dudes, right? They're like, and I've always seen their, especially with Frank Chin, they're wanting to use a black vernacular as also a way of trying to project masculinity, especially for a generation of Asian American men who felt like that was denied to them in the media. So a big critique of that generation is this misogyny in a lot of these stories. And I don't know, Justin, do you feel like these two things are going hand in hand? Like an expression of masculinity is going hand in hand with an expression of being part of a multiracial community? That's very interesting. Um, I always think it's fascinating, though, that in that particular scene, and I told you so, that a lot of the women contributors are in the shot. <laughs> so you might think that, gosh, if this was one of the foundational meetings, who are all the women? You know? <laughs> like, this is interesting. So I do actually have a sense in terms of the UCLA group that there was definitely some good old-fashioned, you know, nationalist kind of toxic masculinity going on. Yeah, I think that definitely was happening. In fact, Sylvia Morales is quoted in Chan Noriega's book about early Chicano cinema. He describes an interview with her where she describes a UCLA class that David Garcia was teaching. And, and it was a multiracial class, but I mean, every single guy, I guess, whether they were Chicano, Black, whatever, they was like, yeah, when I become a famous filmmaker, I'm going to have, you know, the hot chick and the hot car, and the, you know, and she was just disgusted. She was just like, how can you be talking about this? You know, this is not why I'm becoming a filmmaker at all. <laughs> you know, like, is this really why you're becoming a filmmaker? You know, what a shame. Luckily, we have some films that have these really great films by the men of this group who feature the women in very beautiful and important and, and I would say feminist ways. But that sort of homosocial bonding, I think, is, is interesting. And I can't exactly speak on the sort of desire to posture in ways that seem more masculine. But I think, I think that could be some of what's happening. I mean, I see it sometimes even in the photos when I've asked for some archival photos 
I just see all these dudes around the camera and no women. I was like, but you had women classmates, weren't they? But, you know, it's like really hipster Chicano, really hipster Iranian, really hipster Asian, really hipster Black, all like looking bad in their jean jackets and whatnot, you know, crowd around that equipment. And so they probably had a good time. <laughs> but, you know, to what cost? I'm not sure, you know. I'm probably also seeing it in hindsight, thinking about people like Eddie Huang and David Cho, the more contemporary, high-profile Asian-American men who are on more of the side of like, what do they care about women? Uh, so maybe I'm reading it also through that lens too. Oh, really? Oh, I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> She's like, what are you dragging me into? So, anyways, uh, so I, I actually wanted to maybe to connect it with what's happening since, because we've talked about, I told you so, we talked about visual communications we asked questions about are these lanes existing, but to what extent these lanes are widened and actually allow for other possibilities and other acknowledgements of different experiences. To the point now where Asian American cinema doesn't really resemble the kind of Asian American filmmaking that we saw in the early 70s, especially on this topic of intersectional or multiracial or interethnic kind of approaches to Asian American filmmaking. I mean, someone argued to the extent that like Asian American cinema was established for the purposes of collective social revolution <laughs> to help out everybody. Today, it seems like the purpose of Asian American cinema is to have more Justin Lin's, is to get more Asian Americans in Hollywood, which seems such a far cry. So I'm curious, like, if you have any thoughts about that or if you've seen exceptions that you feel like are meaningful. Um, I think this is such a dilemma and difficult question across people of color, filmmakers the ones who want to be loved up by the industry <laughs> or the ones that are still trying to do some sort of experimental work or, you know, community-based kind of work. And I, I hate to say how hard it is sometimes still to come up with examples, whether we're talking about Black filmmakers or Asian American filmmakers, of doing lots of work that are still interested in those kinds of crossings. It's been a while since that was a thing to do, <laughs> you know? I was thinking of uh, Lana Lynn's documentary uh -huh, yeah. um, about the, the cancer journals, Audre Lorde's work. I feel like maybe in the documentary realm, this is happening much more. I mean, obviously almost all of Grace Lee's work is in some way looking at multiracial communities and activism. I mean, I it's so exciting to see the recent documentary about the women in politics and she could be next. It's such a feast of women of color in that film, you know, working together, working collaboratively. So I still think there's a group of engaged filmmakers that want to keep working in that way. I mean, and Grace's DP is a Black cinematographer. So it's just something that she's always done anyway, and she continues to do it. People like Mira Nair, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, you know, some of the bigger Hollywood folk that are still every now and then still being kind of third world. <laughs> you know? I think it does happen some. But not so much like in the Mississippi Masala days or whatever. Yeah. So I do wonder, I mean, we have to wonder if this recent round of protests that has clearly been so multiracial, if we will see a new burgeoning of this kind of work again. And I have to say, I was very touched by like VC's solidarity statements. There were all these kind of, you know, Asian American media groups that were coming up with these beautiful solidarity <laughs> statements. And so I like to see the next round of their festivals and programming and stuff like that, if it will end up kind of walking 
the talk of, of those statements. <laughs> you know, I, I hope that it will. The statements themselves were quite beautiful and saying, you know, we have to look at the anti-blackness within the Asian American community, all of that. If the walk matches the talk, it's going to really thrill me. <laughs> I think part of it is because there became another stereotype. Do they call it like the United Colors of Benetton? Of multiculturalism. But that's when like white people are casting people of color, right? And it's like, we need one of these, we need one of these, we, we need one of these, and they all act white. <laughs> you know what I mean? Except for that one special episode, the Diwali <laughs> episode. I guess the real challenge is like, how do you do it in a way that's authentic? How do you have these communities telling their stories together as opposed to just putting people in because it looks better. Like, that's the hard part. The easy part is picking one person of each color and putting them in a TV show, even though that's been very hard to even get. (laughs) But, like, that doesn't take changing the stories. That doesn't take thinking very hard about the characters and their backgrounds. Or their values. Or even their names. They could still all be named John. And it doesn't take hiring a lot of people of color to write it or to direct it. I hope it's on the cusp of something. I think it is. I mean, I don't know if it's too optimistic, but I think it is. Well, I think it's like in the spirit of ethnocommunications, I think that we would have to do it ourselves. Like we can't wait for Hollywood to be the one saying, all right, you're up now. You're up now. All right, you two work together. It has to be because we're doing it ourselves and we see the value of working together. And part of that too, that like when that starts happening, there's going to be a ton of error. And we're going to have to like go through that and not see that as an example of how this doesn't work, but just part of the process. Like we need to try things out and then you're not going to please everyone, but let's try it out. You know, like <laughs> I think it's old school organizing sort of 101 about listening and sort of the fluidity to know that you are going to make mistakes. But, you know, like in jazz terms or whatever, that that's what improvisation is. You know, that's it has to have the room to be free enough to go out. But improvisation also requires deep deep listening, you know, so that you can anticipate things and, or not, you know, something comes that you hadn't anticipated. I'm riffing like that because I think that this multiracial collaborative work, especially in the realm of the arts, will need to require that, a kind of daring and a courage to say, this could go badly. <laughs> you know, and we can make a whole lot of mistakes and hurt some people's feelings, but you know, there's something about this that is so important to us that we want to show up to it. And again, I think that's where like history is just so important. I mean, that you cannot tell the story of the city of Los Angeles that doesn't look like the city that we know it is. You just can't do that anymore. That was such a shame about all the all the OJ documentaries and Kate, I mean, Aside from Grace's work and some other people's work, all the April 92 stories were told in black-white binaries again. And so you just can't tell that story of Los Angeles anymore without remembering that there were Central American, you know, immigrants who were traumatized by all the tanks because they had just come from El Salvador with all those same tanks, you know, in 92. I mean, that's Los Angeles. All of those communities need to be remembered and addressed or else you really aren't telling the truth about your city. So there's so many layers of, there's the um, commitment to trying to do the work and coming together, but I think there's there's a real need to recognize and know the history too and the demographics, you know? For sure. Um, I have a question. I really want to know about you and how you came to be interested in this kind of research. Well, um, 
I was an ethnic studies major at Berkeley way back in the 80s. <laughs> I'm old as hell. And um, so once I became an ethnic studies major, I, I mean, I'm also an old-fashioned mulatta. <laughs> my dad's black, my mom's white. My dad's from Mississippi, my mom's from Maine. So I think, you know, my brother and I talk a lot about, you know, we already were in a household that was like an impossible sort of history, <laughs> you know, but uh, it probably just made us ask questions and wonder things. And when I got to Berkeley, I was so happy to finally be with all, because I grew up in Irvine. I grew up in Orange County. You grew up in Irvine? <laughs> oh, yes. What, what decade? Irvine in the 70s. <laughs> what was Irvine like in the 70s? Horrible. <laughs> was it very white? Very white, almost only white. It's funny, I probably about 10 years ago, I went to visit a couple high school teachers who still were there, and they said, they even remember. They were my teachers, but they were like, how did you survive, <laughs> number one? Number two, they said, it wasn't just white, it was blonde. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, there were a few Mexicans, a few Asian Americans, but it was a very, very white place. My dad had a job at UCI, that's how we moved there. But that's I just want to and just like, give a shout out staying in the media world. I was Lonnie Ding's student when I was in Berkeley. And so she just meant the world to me, you know? I mean, she was someone who I still, I mean, I when my book comes out, I'll probably dedicate it to her and to Barbara Christian, my two professors who were so meaningful in that time. And when you are their student, you just know, again, the kind of thing I just said, everything that you've heard me say today is probably because of them, that you just can't kind of have these conversations monoracially. I mean, that was definitely the 80s moment was the moment of really thinking about women of color, politics, uh, literature, poetry, theater. So we were just so steeped in that. And we also, of course, most of our professors had been the ones that were striking for ethnic studies and, you know, Third World College and all that in San Francisco and Berkeley. And so solidarity just wasn't a joke to us. It was like why we were able to have a department, why we were able to be ethnic studies majors, because these people came together to do this work. And I know it's a delicate and dangerous thing to not get Pollyanna-ish about that, or I'm definitely not on that Benetton kind of kick, because it was really serious. And I mean, people were hurt. And um, there's a lot of mess with it. There were a lot of politics on campus. And so it was an interesting, like the few of us Black students on campus who decided to be ethnic studies majors instead of AFAM majors, it was always like a little interesting tension, you know, but it just was the place we wanted to go because we wanted to learn it all, you know, we wanted to be excited and empowered by it all, you know, and, and we wanted to take third world cinema with the great Albert Johnson, who's featured in Film Quarterly, I, I know, there's a little thing on the Film Quarterly site. Albert Johnson was our Eliseo Taylor. He was, he was the black professor at Berkeley who was teaching third world cinema and inviting us into these worlds. So again, it just made sense that we are stronger, all of us together, learning about each other and doing this kind of work together um, and benefiting from these scholars who, who did that, the generation before us. So, so that goes full circle back when I first heard about LA Rebellion, I was like, it's not just black filmmakers. Why is this story getting told this way? So it was important for me to remind everyone it was multiracial. 
That's amazing. The Lonnie Dean connection is also amazing. And the Berkeley Ethnic Studies, I, I would just listen to a podcast. It was an interview with Viet Thanh Nguyen, where he talks about being at Berkeley in Ethnic Studies in the early 90s. And he talks about a lot of these tensions as well. It seems like a, a special time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Can you tell us about the book that you're working on now? It, it's based on my dissertation and it is all about this. It's all about the ethno-communications program and the trajectory of the filmmakers. So it both will do kind of a history of the program at UCLA, but also it's going to have sections of the book that just really examine these films cross-racially. Tony Cade Bambara, the great writer and filmmaker who writes about the LA Rebellion filmmakers, she called them the Black Insurgents. She has this beautiful essay that she writes about them where she talks about the intertextual echoes between the films, the films of the Black UCLA group. And so I'm really trying to expand that and look at the intertextual echoes cross-racially between this group that train together. And I'm focusing it on the filmmakers who were there during the ethno years in that 69 to 73 sort of period. And I'm so into it. (laughs) It's so funny, but because within this body of work, and of course I'll be writing about, I told you so, there is also just such an amazing archive of the city of Los Angeles, of the literature of LA and California, of the jazz and the music of people of color here, you know, from ranchera music to taiko. I mean, like, it's all in this filmography. It's, it's all there. I mean, for that alone, it's just such an exciting filmography, this set of films. So I want people to know about it. That's what it is. That's amazing. I can't wait to assign that in my classes. So the film, I told you so, is not commercially available in the usual ways. Like you're not going to find this on Netflix. If you have access to a university that has New Day films or tell them to purchase the streaming rights for for I told you so, as well as the entire VC collection, the VC films that are on there. As Jocelyn's been arguing and which we totally are behind. This is essential filmmaking that says a lot about the cities we live in and independent cinema and where we are now. LA history. And early Asian American movement history. Yeah. So many important histories are yeah. in this work. Oh, what a joy to talk with you both. I know. This is so much fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. My son, you are beside me now. No. You will not be leaving for Oklahoma. No, no one will take your photo in front of barracks. Yes, we are willing to serve. Yes, we swear allegiance. And if my old time is allowed, I will go off into the hills with the flute of my father and sing the song of geese in the wind a wind among tulies, of the red tule rope, of blood that always flows, of cloud around Shasta, and listen and grow silent and still in my own, in my own wisdom and dignity as a man.
Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Class dismissed. Mm, but we're still here and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.